Our theme this morning for the teaching and for the open discussion to which all of you are invited immediately afterward in room 252 upstairs is music. That's the theme. The music of worship. I'm sure I don't have to tell any of you that this is a lightning rod issue in the church. It's unbelievable how many churches have been split up over this issue. And we're not going to let that happen by the grace of God here. God's intention for the gift of music is not to divide, but instead is to unite us in an amazing way that nothing else can do in quite the same manner. Now, part of what I have to share with you this morning will not be comfortable for some, and probably some of what I have this, to say this morning will not be comfortable for each of you in some way. For it, it, You're all going to find something that bothers you about what I say. But I'll ask you right up front to suspend your judgment for this hour. I'll ask you, with the spirit of humility, to listen and to see what, if anything, of my words you see to accurately represent God's words on this matter. Because it's an important matter. Every one of us in this room needs to give prayerful consideration to this issue. The first thing I want to look at is God's design for music in worship as it's presented in Scripture. We see throughout the Word that the Word of God that music has the goal or purpose of worship. The music of worship has as its objective to worship God. And so the content of music would then be expected to follow everything that we've talked about in the last couple of times about what biblical worship is. That means that the music we raise up and lift up together to God and we lift up in our prayer closets to God should honor Him as God and give thanks to Him as God. It should recognize His name and His works and praise Him for those those things that are true of Him. And it should be filled, absolutely filled to overflowing with thanksgiving. And that's what you see in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. That's what you see throughout the Psalms. Thanksgiving is everywhere in the music of Scripture. Music as a part of the worship of God shows up in every category of Scripture. In the Bible books from the narrative and law in the Pentateuch to the books of the Kings to the Psalms and Proverbs to the prophets to the Gospels to Acts to the Epistles and to Revelation. It's everywhere. The Psalms and the songs recorded in the Old Testament constitute the lyrics, the words that were sung to God by the congregation of Israel. The content of the songs that we sing in worship is the content of worship. Now in the Bible, songs of worship show up in all kinds of mixtures of people, all kinds of groups of people and of individuals. We already we just saw in Colossians 3 that music is to be an integral part of our worship when we come together in one place as the saints of God as we've done this morning. But we also find songs of worship in the Bible in small gatherings of believers. For instance, in Matthew 26, immediately after Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his 12 disciples, when they were gathered at a table together with him for the Passover meal, that small group sang a hymn together, Matthew 26, 
26, verse 30. Songs of praise and worship show up even when there are only a couple of believers present. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas found themselves in a Philippian prison, it says that around midnight they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And of course it's noteworthy that they were singing hymns of praise to God right after they had been beaten with rods and thrown into jail. And songs of praise are just as important to individual worship as they are to corporate worship. James 5.13 says, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. In every place and in every context in which it is good to worship God, it is good to worship Him in song. And of course we know that music will be a wonderful part of our experience of worship even in eternity. Revelation 5, Revelation 14... In Revelation 15, we see redeemed saints and holy angels singing songs together that exalt the name and the works of God. God the Father and God the Son, declaring Him alone to be worthy of all honor and praise. There's going to be a lot of music in the New Jerusalem, and I suspect it's going to be really good music. One of the things I really look forward to is that maybe in my glorified state, I'll actually be able to sing better. (laughs) One of the most intriguing things I got to, to ponder this week as I was looking at what the Bible has to say about the issue of music was the manward benefit of corporate music. And this was very interesting. In other words, how God uses the songs that we sing together as a means of instructing, admonishing, reminding, and encouraging each other so that we'll be better worshipers and servants of God. 1 Chronicles 25.3 says the the musicians that David appointed to play and sing in the house of the Lord prophesied, prophesied in giving thanks and praise to God. They proclaimed the revelation of God's character and God's works to men by thanking and praising God. You look at the Psalms, you see some of them are history lessons about God's dealings with Israel. And they're they're reminders to the Israelites who were singing together these words. Who God is and what God has done. And there's an inherent admonition in those things to submit to and to be bondservants to the living God. The songs that were part of Israel's worship were instructive to the people even as they were directed toward God. And the same simultaneous Godward and manward benefit in songs of corporate worship abides in the New Testament. In Colossians 3 that we just read, it says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. How? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Isn't that amazing? You're singing to God and you're encouraging each other. Ephesians 5 verses 18 to 20 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit... Speaking to one another, how? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to God. It's manward and Godward at the same time. 
<laughs> always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Do you ever think of the songs that we sing together as a means for teaching and admonishing one another? God does. I think that's cool. And both of those passages are songs of worship that are directed to him, remind and encourage and instruct and even admonish us so that our worship of him, both individually and corporately, will be filled up to overflowing. Now, there is God-ordained... Oh, and I meant to mention this. In your bulletin is an outline. Since I don't have the overhead, there's a single white piece of paper that has an outline. should help you follow where I am. There is God-ordained power in the music itself, not just in the words. The playing of instruments, even without words, has power in the hands of God to soothe the soul and to bring healing and wholeness. In 1 Samuel 16... When King Saul was plagued by an evil spirit, the king's servants sought out a young man named David, whom the text says was a skillful skillful musician, along with being a valiant warrior, and said, And the Lord is with this man. And the passage says that whenever David came and played the harp for Saul, the king would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. There is power in the vessel of music, in the gift of music that God has given to us. Music engages the whole person in the act of worship. Ephesians 5.19, again, says that we are to sing and make melody in our with your heart, excuse me, with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God and the Father. Now, what is the heart in Scripture? The heart's the whole inner man. It's the mind, it's the emotions, it's the will, it's everything about the man that makes him who he is and that drives him. Music does things that words alone cannot do. It appeals to the whole, the whole inner person, not just to the mind. And when men don't just hear music but actually participate in it, it appeals and involves, uh, appeals to and involves even the body. We clap, we dance, we move around, we get into it. David danced before the Lord with all his might. It gives expression to the whole person in ways that no other aspect of worship can quite do. It's a vehicle. It's a God-given and God-ordained means to enhance and to fill up the worship of God God in a manner that goes beyond what words can accomplish. It's a beautiful gift to men from the God who knows us better than we know ourselves. In our particular Christian circles, which is educated, Bible-believing, middle and upper-class suburban evangelicals, or ebmuse, if you want to read I think there's a kind of unstated rule of thumb that we follow, and it says, if something appeals to the emotions rather than to the mind, it's bad. Or at the very least, it's inferior. It's not mature. Now, I'm strongly convinced that that rule of thumb needs a little tweak in order to be completely biblical. And that tweak is this. If something appeals to the whole man in unison, the mind, the body, the emotions, the will, and points the focus of the whole man to God, it's not just good, it's great. 
Anything that appeals to the emotions or to our bodies or to our minds that turns us away from God is wicked. And it needs to be, it needs to be avoided at all costs. But when God gives us a gift that appeals to all of the parts of a man in unison and points the whole person to God, that is supremely good. And I believe that's exactly why God gave us the gift of music. Music is not incidental to worship. It is not peripheral to worship. It is indispensable to worship. And it's been part of the life of God's people from the very beginning. Having said all of that, it's very important for us to recognize that it is the words that are primary. Which part of the Psalms and the songs of Israel did God see fit to preserve for us? The notes? The words? Or both? Well, you'll have a hard time finding the musical scores in the Bible. Do you think the God who was able to carve the Ten Commandments in tablets of rock and then, you know, carve those rocks out of big boulders and hand them to Moses, do you think he couldn't have come up with a way to annotate and preserve music if he had wanted to? Of course he could. Which is more important to God, the words or the music? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not asking which is important. I hope I've already established that music in the hands of God adds a fullness to our worship that words alone cannot accomplish. What I'm asking is which is more important. And that's, that's a question we need to address if we're going to sort out which music is good for the body of Christ and which is not. Now, I love music. When I was a kid, I used to, I used to flip around in, in my bed and sleep with my head toward the door so that I could hear the swing era music that my dad was playing on the big Motorola console stereo. I still love that music. I'm very eclectic, though. Someone mentioned country music this morning, Brother John. I like a lot of that, too. But i, I got to tell you, when I would lay there in that bed listening to music, you know what I was really getting into? It wasn't the words. It was the music. But that priority is reversed when it comes to the music of worship for pretty much the same reason that we always must subordinate our emotions to God's truth. Emotions are not inherently evil. But if they do not follow after God's truth, that is, if they lead, they mislead. Because the heart of man is deceptive. It's wicked beyond all things. Yeah, God redeems it, but we're still struggling with the flesh, so there's still an element of deception in there that always has to be tested with and corrected by the truth of God. Again, don't get me wrong. There are times when the playing of a song, even without the words, is an act of worship. But what makes it an act of worship is that we have in mind at least a good portion of the words of that song. And that makes it more than just another pleasant piece of music. That's, by the way, why I love it when we put the words to the offertory song up on the screen. Or at least give a page reference in a hymnal so we can go and look at the words as it's being played. I love the music. But guys, it's the words that point our minds and our hearts to God. I think that should be standard practice. Here's the second question. 
which part of our corporate songs in most cases drives people away from certain churches and attracts them to other churches? Is it the words or is it the music? I would submit that it's not predominantly the words because even in in churches that do a lot of contemporary music, some of that music is a reworking of old hymns that preserve the original words. They may tweak them a little or modernize them a little, but it's not the words that are driving people away from churches. It's the notes and the rhythm and the volume and the instrumentation. Is that what matters most to God? We should not be running people off because we're insistent on clinging to a very limited scope of music when it's the words in the music that are of greatest concern to God. And on the other side of that equation, people should not be basing a huge part of their decision about where to worship on something that is not primary in the design of God. We just need to get our priorities right. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about common complaints about the other guy's favorite worship music. And I want to just quickly consider some of the most common that I've heard from believers or that I've had myself. And then to try to maybe weigh those complaints a little bit in light of biblical priorities. So we'll have some idea which need to be taken seriously and acted upon. Let's first talk about complaints regarding contemporary worship music. I have often heard it said that too many of our contemporary worship songs are in the first person singular, and that that's symptomatic of the fact that they're too much about us and not enough about God. But the Bible contains many powerful and worshipful passages and songs written by individuals speaking in the first person singular, psalms and songs that proclaim God's faithfulness directly to the person singing the song. David concludes Psalm 19 by saying to God, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Praising God in prayer, either in my prayer closet or in the company of his people, for what he has done for me is not the problem with contemporary music. In fact, that's exactly what the vows of praise in the Old Testament were all about. The problem is that some contemporary music makes out as if God acts for our sake instead of for his sake. That's by far my biggest personal concern about a lot of what I hear in contemporary Christian music. Some songs focus so heavily on the felt needs of man and on God as the one who fixes those felt needs, that it trivializes God. It makes, it makes it appear that God's agenda is determined by us. And you know what? There's a lot of songs out there that are like that. We have to do better than that. It is a marvelous grace that everything that God does that exalts his name ends up blessing his people even when that blessing comes through pain. But we must never lose sight of the fact that God always acts for the sake of His great name. And that's what our songs need to proclaim. There are plenty of great and recent songs that do that. We just sang one of them. Those are the kinds of songs that we need to keep adding to our worship. We have to do it thoughtfully. 
Now, another couple of complaints that have a lot in common are that contemporary music is too repetitious and it's too simplistic. Some of the songs that I hear on Christian radio sound more like mantras than they do like songs of worship. I've even heard songs that sing the word hallelujah for two, cor- two whole verses of the song, and that's the only word in the song. And you know what the word hallelujah is? It's a call to praise. It's not content of praise. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. The next question is, for what? For the most part, the songs preserved for us in Scripture are not repetitious. They're filled with content that remembers and proclaims the character and attributes of God and His powerful works throughout history. Even the few psalms that use a lot of repetition happen to be interspersed with plenty of specific content for us to ponder with our minds and our hearts. Look at Psalm 136 for a minute. Turn in it in your Bible. Turn to it. Psalm 136. There are 26 verses in that psalm. And 26 times in that psalm, the phrase, His loving kindness is everlasting, is repeated. 26 times. It's the second half of every single verse in that psalm. We've used that psalm as a responsive reading before in this, in this church. So repetition alone does not make the truth of God trivial. Some things are worth repeating. And His loving kindness is one of those things. But in that same psalm, look at the first half of each verse. The first half of each verse is different than the first half of every other verse. And it starts with His name, and then goes to His works. With who He is, and then what He has done. And it just walks through part of Israel's history, and it talks about the greatness of God. Most of the songs contained in Scripture, by far, are very intentional about spelling out the content of praise and worship. They don't engage in meaningless repetition, and they never disengage the mind. They never disengage the mind. It seems to me that some contemporary Christian music gets pretty far afield from that biblical pattern by using repetition as a means to manipulate the emotions while largely disengaging the mind. Okay, so we just need to watch for that. Please understand that anything I'm saying, none of it applies to all of any category of music. We just need to be discerning. I often hear that some modern Christian music is so simplistic, both musically and lyrically, that it fails to possess any real excellence. The complaint in this is that apparently... Some of this, this music doesn't take a whole lot of thought or effort either to create or to repeat. In effect, it's lazy worship. Again, there is no doubt some important legitimacy to this complaint, and we need to take it seriously. Many of the old hymns of the faith are loaded with theology. You can spend hours studying some of these hymns and comparing them with Scripture, and you'll find that these guys knew the Word of God profoundly. Is that something that's only supposed to be true of music in the past? I certainly hope not. Our worship of God is supposed to be excellent, not lazy or trivial or mediocre. But I also want to say that simplicity and excellence are not necessarily mutually exclusive. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song. 
amazing grace all day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. Is that complicated? No. Is it excellent? You bet. We need to scrutinize the songs we present to the, in this body before they're ever presented. And you know what? We have a group of folks who work hard at doing exactly that. It doesn't mean they always get it exactly right, but they do a very good job. If the absence of thoughtfulness or excellence, either in the lyrics or in the music of some songs, means that we don't get to sing everything that every other church is singing, that shouldn't be grounds for complaining or grumbling or dividing It should be grounds for gratitude to God for putting us in a local body that takes true and excellent worship seriously. I said a few minutes ago that the words are of primary importance in the music of worship, and because that's true, on this next point, things get really messed up when you can't hear or understand the words. A while back, I went to a Christian concert with Dan and some of our other youth. It's been a couple of years There were several bands that got on the stage that evening. I really enjoyed it, by the way. Uh, Bands like Mercy Me and Jeremy Camp, Addison Road, Hawk Nelson, and there were a couple of others. For the most part, each band that played that night and sang was careful and intentional about making sure that the words were understood. In fact, most of them put the words up on the Jumbotron instead of showing videos of themselves. But then one of the bands got up on stage... And the instruments completely drowned out the words. And I didn't have a clue what they were singing. And I'm pretty sure nobody else did except the ones who'd already bought all their music and looked it up, you know, looked the lyrics up on, online, which a lot of young people do. They didn't put the words on the screen and they were the one band that needed to. And I have to say that that part of the evening, for me, was not worship. It was a performance. Fairly impressed with their technical musical expertise, but It wasn't worship. When the proclamation of God's name and of God's works is buried in the instruments, it's not worship. Sometimes it's just bad mixing. (laughs) All right. Now let's talk about traditional hymns and the complaints against those. Here's a couple of complaints I've heard from young believers about old traditional hymns of the faith. First, I don't even understand words like bulwark or throng, or fetter, or raiment, or betide, or twixt. Sometimes it's like singing a language I don't even know. Here's another one. The music in a lot of the old hymns doesn't stimulate me to worship. It does the opposite. It's better as a sleep aid than it is as a worship aid. Now that's two complaints, not one, but they they have to do both with the the perception by many young people that the old hymns of the faith are just plain old, that they're so outdated both in language and in the style of music that they distract from worship more than they stimulate worship. Now, at one level, I want to say I think that complaint is completely bogus, but at another, from another angle, I think it deserves our earnest consideration. Here's where I think it's bogus. I'll pose it as a question to our young folks. Are the things that have come into existence in your lifetime the only things that are worth paying attention to? Would you know about things like God's plan of redemption or like baptism or crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ by which your sins were paid for in eternity if you didn't spend some time learning about stuff that's really old? 
Would you even know what a word like crucifixion or atonement means if you didn't learn about things that happened and that were revealed a very long time before you were a gleam in your father's eye? A lazy, self-serving approach to the things of the Lord leads only to an immature and powerless Christianity. Throughout the entire history of God's people, God has called us to search for true wisdom as we search for hidden treasure. And that demands discipline and work and commitment. So if we want to take a lazy approach to any aspect of the worship of God, we're going to be kind of disappointed in what it what it creates in our in us in terms of the 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 usefulness of the body of Christ to God. Now, from another angle, I have to say that there's legitimacy legitimacy to this complaint that us older believers had better acknowledge and do something about. And here's what I mean. There is a very well-reasoned assertion coming from many thoughtful young believers that goes something like this. If it was good for Christians to create modern English translations of the Bible precisely because nobody still speaks 17th century English, then why do we still sing sing hymns that are filled with archaic language and that use music that was culturally popular 200 years ago? Honestly, I find at least some aspect of that logic pretty hard to argue against. I'd wager that pretty much none of us who read and pray back the Psalms to God are still doing it in Hebrew. In fact, the vast majority of of us in this room are not still doing it in King James English. And the words of the Psalms are God's words, but words are symbols through which meaning and ideas are communicated. And so long as the meaning of the words is carefully, carefully preserved, then we're all generally okay with modernizing the language some. In fact, when the symbols that represent the meaning are better understood, the meaning is better communicated. And at some level, guys, that's a cultural phenomenon. Which symbols communicate best? If that's not the reason most of us use newer translations of the Bible, I'd like to know what is. So is it a bad thing for us to update some of the old hymns a bit, either lyrically or musically, or in some cases both? One of my all-time favorite hymns is One Day. It was my favorite aunt's favorite hymn. By the standard of old hymns, it's fairly young at only 100 years old. In 2009, Michael Bleeker from the Village Church here in Flower Mound, Texas, wrote an updated version of that hymn, and he called it Glorious Day. Casting Crowns put it on the map. I love Casting Crowns, by the way. And it quickly became a staple of worship in thousands of churches. Mr. Bleeker changed up the melody nicely. He preserved three of the four verses from the original hymn, and he added some lyrics that, at least from my perspective, actually add to the power of the hymn. Now, the first one or two or maybe three times that we did Glorious Day here, I wasn't on board. I was cringing the first time. I thought, man, this is one of my favorite hymns. You can't do this to one of my favorite hymns. But you know what? I absolutely love it when we sing that song now. And I'll tell you a secret if you promise not to tell anyone else. I I like it better than the original. My new all-time favorite hymn, Before the Throne of God, is a 150-year-old hymn that I never paid any attention to for the first 30 years of my Christian life. And you know why? Because the melody in the hymnal was unsingable. In 1997, a lady named Vicki Cook wrote a new melody for that great old hymn in a more contemporary Irish folk mode. 
And the very first time I heard our music team sing it, it drove me to tears of joy. Because I finally paid attention to what it said. To this day, I rarely make it through that hymn without goosebumps and tears. I consider it to be the most powerful declaration of our security in Christ that was ever put to music. Every generation gets to add to the legacy of Christian music, but, beloved, every generation must be respectful and humble with regard to the legacy of Christian music that came before it. There's beauty and majesty and wisdom and excellent theology and powerful exhortation and great assurance in the words of many of the old hymns of the faith. And many of the melodies are still beautiful and eminently singable. We sang a few of them this morning mixed in with newer hymns. And we didn't have to have two services to do it. Let me add a point. Many of the great hymns of the faith are forged from profound and often painful experiences by which the writers came to know the character of God in a very profound way. My brother Bob mentioned this this Wednesday when we were talking. You know what? If you learn about John Newton's life, you will never sing Amazing Grace the same way again. If you read the story of the death of Horatio Spafford's daughters in a ship at sea, and then you learn that when he wrote the words to It Is Well With My Soul, he was on another ship traveling right over that same place where he had lost his daughters. You will never sing that hymn the same way again. One possible action item for consideration might be to take a few of the great old hymns of the faith and study them in your ministry group together with the children who are in the families in your ministry group. Talk about the theology in the hymns. Compare them with Scripture as you point out where the, where the writer derived the words from the Word. And talk about the history behind the hymns, how God worked in the lives of these men to bring them to these amazing declarations about God. And by the way, there are newer songs that have come out of the same kind of profound experience of God. I'm running late, and I'm going to... I got the last part of this I can't cut because it's the most important part. It's about the priority of humility and unity in the matter of corporate music. So what I'm going to ask you to do is be patient because Keith's going to get up here and have about 10 minutes of content that he very much needs to present. And then we're going to have an open discussion. And when we do, it's going to go a little late. So forgive me. Bear with me. If you have kids you need to pick up at noon, straight up, go do that. But give your Sunday school teachers a break and give the open discussion a little extra time to go. Because I really, I'm going to ask you to forbear with me and hear what I'm about to say. The priority of humility and unity in the music of corporate worship Colossians 3, we read it at the beginning. And I pointed out that the context in which we are called to sing to one another, to, to speak to one another in songs as we sing to God, the context is this. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, one body, and be thankful. Then, he says, 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's the context. Ephesians 5, very similar. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men. This is verse 15. But as wise. And then in verse 18 it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And then you know what the very next statement is. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And in both of those passages, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, the next set of topics that's developed is how... That subjection of self to others manifests itself in various relationships. Wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. In both of those passages, the first context in which subjection of self to others is presented is the context of corporate worship. And the whole issue of the songs that we sing together is in that context. Are you with me? It's important. We are to be subject to one another for the sake of Christ. We are to be subject to one another following the example of Christ who set aside self-interest for our sake. And if he hadn't, guys, we'd all still be condemned. The goal of all this is the unity of the body of Christ as we all submit to our head, Jesus Christ. Worship with disunity is repugnant to God. When we come together to worship, Do we approach the matter of music the way God would have us approach it? With a very intentional subordination of self-interest to the well-being of the people around us. Let me ask this question. Is there anything that we do in the experience of corporate worship that engages us in greater unison than the songs that we sing together? Is there anything else that we do in the life of the church where we are speaking the same words, singing the same notes, in the same rhythm, and we're doing it all together? I believe one of the greatest blessings God accomplishes in the hearts of His people through music is the unique expression of unity that pours forth when we exalt Him together in song. It's a beautiful gift in what is has got to be grievous to God is when we come together and we sing praises together in song and then we go aside and we start talking about music and we tear each other apart over it. How can that work? I'm not saying that I've seen a lot of that here. But guys, I've seen some of it. Corporate worship is not about me getting my way or you getting your way. It's about God getting His way in all of us Together. And that is not going to happen if any of us, if each of us is clinging tenaciously to his or her own personal preferences when it comes to styles of music or to styles of worship. Are we truly being subject to one another when it comes to music or are we, as my brother Taylor said on Wednesday morning, pretty much all music snobs? He wasn't just talking about this church. In fact, he probably wasn't talking predominantly about this church. He's talking about the way people are wired. Music is about as subjective as tastes in food. Everybody here like broccoli? See, some do, some don't. I can assure you of this, guys. If you're one of those who comes on Sundays and you're mostly comfortable, 
and pleased with the kind of music that we employ in our worship here at CBC, then there are other people in this room today who are subjecting their preferences to yours. And the question is, are you willing to do the same for them? If you think that's not true, think again. By the way, I mentioned this already, but have you noticed that in most churches in which both contemporary and traditional music are employed, they're employed in separate services? Is that unity? That's not unity. That's just a convenient way to exercise disunity without having two separate churches. I love what we did this morning. We sang songs by Philip Bliss and Ira Sankey and Chris Tomlin. There are centuries that separate those men. And I loved every single song that we sang. So we're doing, I think we're doing some things right, and I think that's the spirit with which we need to move forward. Adding diversity in the music of our corporate worship will not be easy or comfortable for some. But how many of you here believe that God cares most about your comfort? Let me be very clear about this next point. Nobody that I've talked to about music or heard from about music in this church is advocating extremes. Nobody wants anything but excellent worship. Nobody's advocating trivial, pointless lyrics. Nobody's advocating blowing the doors off with walls of amplifiers. We want excellent worship. Let's be careful not to misrepresent the intentions of another brother or sister in Christ. God doesn't like it when we do that. By the way, just for a little bit of historical perspective, when Johann Sebastian Bach came onto the scene, one of the prominent types of worship music was Gregorian chants. And he added beautiful melodies and elaborate instrumentation and wonderful words. And he was accused of bringing sensuality into the experience of worship, the worship of God's people. Within a very short period of time, his hymns filled cathedrals and churches all over the world. And we're still singing them and we're still playing them. You know why? Because they're excellent. Okay, one last point. I know, I'm I'm sorry, please forgive me, uh, Keith. There was a time in the not-so-distant past in America indeed when my in my own lifetime when the evangelical churches were color coded the thought of working walking into a suburban church and finding black and hispanic and white and indian and arabic and eastern european people was unheard of is there anyone here who thinks that was a better state of affairs than the mix that you see in this room today i can assure you there were believers back then including well-intentioned believers who longed to see racial lines eliminated, who were nonetheless convinced that it would do more harm than good to buck cultural expectations in an effort to arrive at the kind of racial diversity that we see in many evangelical churches today. If anyone thinks that getting to that point in the history of the evangelical church in America was pain-free, again, we need to take a closer look. The best things that God does in the lives of his people are pretty much never the comfortable things. Indeed, if Christ is our, own, is, is our example, my own comfort should be the least of my concerns when it comes to what I do together with you guys.
May everything we do when we come together as a body exalt the name of God, build one another up, and encourage each of us to love and good deeds. Whatever doesn't do that doesn't have a place in the worship of God's people. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for for what your your word tells us about this important topic. I I know that I haven't done it justice. There's so much more that can be said. But I do pray, Lord, that you would stir us up and make us look harder at your priorities and that those would be reflected in the way we do all things, including music. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.